Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider, and happy Throwback Thursday. My wonderful co-host, Kevin David Thomas, is not with us today. We miss him, but that's okay, because I get to hog all of our guests' time today, because I am obsessed with her. One of the things I used to love about uh, NBC comedies. I know this is going to be so off-tangent, but here we go. So they used to do these little crossover episodes where like, characters from Cheers would show up in Wings and like Mad About You characters would show up in Seinfeld. And today we're having another podcast showing up on our podcast today. It's a crossover, and it's one of my favorite podcasts, and it ho- should be yours as well. It's called Little Known Facts. The host is the wonderful, brilliant, inspirational Alana Levine. I cannot stress enough how much I love her. Some of her guests on this podcast have included, are you ready for this? Alan Alda, Jordan Roth, Kelly O'Hara, Allison Janney, Matthew Broderick, John Slattery, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Um, These episodes that she creates are inspirational. They are fantastic. And anyone who is working in the theater or the arts or just waking up breathing every morning should be listening to these to be inspired. And I am so happy and proud to say that the wonderful Alana is with us today. How are you, Alana? Uh, I am so happy to be here. And thank you for that incredibly lovely introduction. I cannot tell you how much... um, Everyone is so inspired by these episodes that you are creating. Um, let me ask you, you've been doing this since how long now? 2016? About a y- a little over a year. So where did this idea come from? You know, it really came from uh, a lovely offer that came my way. A friend of mine started a podcast company, and we were talking about how much I love hearing people's stories. I was telling him that had my sister not sort of... Uh, ticked the psychologist box in our family that I was just so envious of her getting to sit for hours every day absorbing and helping people in their lives and that anytime anyone shares an intimate truth about themselves with me, I am filled with gratitude. It makes me feel so special and it also makes me just feel very connected to other people on this planet. And the idea of getting to sit in uh, a very cozy podcast booth, which has now come to feel a bit like a confessional yes. in a way. Yes. Um, but for both of us, both me as the interviewer and, and my guests, there was something about that opportunity. As someone who had listened to podcasts and love love audio storytelling so much, I, I started listening to The Moth kind oh, yes. of thing. And, yes. then, and then slowly as podcasts you know, grew and grew and grew. Mostly NPR was the place that I got my content. But then you go to iTunes and there's just one million of us doing this um, about everything you can imagine. So all that being said, um, the night before my friend mentioned this podcast idea to me, I'd had a conversation with my husband where I was like, I'm going to say yes to anything that comes my way that in no way harms our family financially, <laughs> emotionally, or physically. Um, but I was sort of ready to embark upon a new journey adventure. And so my instinct when he said, you want to host a podcast was like, no, I don't know a thing about podcasts. And then I remembered, I just said, I'm going to say yes. So I did. And um, I thought about uh, when, when, 
writers start writing, they're often instructed to begin with what you know. And I thought, well, as a podcaster, and I couldn't even call myself that at the time, but as someone trying it out, I thought, well, who do I know? And then I bumped into John Slattery, who is an old, old friend of mine. And I told him this idea. He's like, oh, come on. And he did. And, you know, that was a good place to start. Your first guest? Yeah. Your first wonderful guest. Yeah. Um, when So now we're going to jump back a little bit. We're going to mm-hmm. get back to little known facts a little bit later on. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. Teaneck, New Jersey. Just across the George Washington Bridge from New York City. And did you know that you were going to be in the arts? No, I didn't. What I did know is that every time something wonderful happened in our family... Uh, my parents collected all the dollars they could find under couch cushions and, and mattresses and bought us tickets to the theater. That was how we celebrated any milestone <laughs> or happy moment, or we'd make up reasons yes. to go. Um, <laughs> and because we live so close to New York City and ticket prices weren't as insane as they've become, oh, yes. although there are, are all sorts of lotteries and ways in yeah. which people who, who don't have... Um, high-paying careers can see theater. Uh, That's what we would do. That was our family ritual. And cast albums were what we listened to in the morning. I'm much younger than my sisters, and they would go off to school, and I wasn't going to school yet. And to calm me down, uh, my mother would put on the cast recording of My Fair Lady or Camelot or, or any number of ones that she loved. And that was like my pacifier and blanket, right? Oh like my that, gosh. I would lie on the living room floor and just listen to like Feed the Birds or whatever. <laughs> um, so those were the, you know, the soundtracks for yeah. my emotional self-soothing from That's a very beautiful. young age. Yeah. Great. What did mom and dad do? Um, my mother was a teacher. My father was a lawyer and a CPA. And okay. his and he still works and he's almost 90. Um, and his firm is in New York City. So we would come into the city all the time. His office was in Times Square. Good for dad. Yeah, we could go to his office to use the restroom uh, <laughs> when the line was too long at the theater. We could ride <laughs> to his office and run back and still get back in time for Act Two. Do you remember the first Broadway show you saw? I think the first Broadway show that I saw was actually something I was much too young to be seeing, and it was a chorus line. Oh, Um, oh my. And my mom saw that show repeatedly. In fact, I just found all these chorus line show jackets that she purchased, and I want to get them to Broadway Care, like to the Broadway Flea or something. Like I have all of these incredible (laughs) chorus line show jackets that she must have bought. Um, We were cleaning up their house, and I was like, someone will love these. Anyway, I remember um, seeing it, thinking it was extraordinary. I remember during intermission, I had a very pressing question for my mom, and she was very nervous, wondering what... It could have been anything, right? And I asked her what was a resume. Wow. (laughs) That that seemed to be the only thing. Wow. I didn't know. (laughs) Everything else was very clear. But what is a resume? What is a resume? What is a resume? really, what is a resume? That's a great question. I think we're all still trying to yes, figure out. exactly. Now, when did you go to, from like sitting in the audience going, that's amazing, to saying, I want to be on that stage creating that joy for others? I don't know. I don't know that that was ever something that I thought about and planned for. I know that through a series of events, I ended up finding myself the summer between high school and college, 
uh, in an auditing and acting class with a magnificent teacher named Gloria Maddox at the Terry Schreiber Acting Studios in New York City. I found myself there because I had a crush on a guy, (laughs) and it was kind of a date, and I had no interest in acting and had never done it. I wasn't in school plays ever. And uh, he ended up not staying, and I ended up finding my religion. And that changed everything, not in terms of I know I want to be an actress professionally, but I want to be around the kind of people who are so open and bear their souls in this way. What did you think you were going to do with your life? Or are you not a big, I don't believe in making plans, I just go where the wind blows? Um, I'm somewhere in the middle, but I did have a plan to go to college and and study maybe advertising or, you know, I grew up with a a businessman father and I thought I would do something in the... In that world, maybe go on to get an MBA. That was sort of the original that was the, plan. The plan. And then this happened, and everything changed. And I needed to find a theater program, and and I had to, I lost the deposit on the university I Sorry. was going to go to. Sorry, yeah. were mom and dad okay with this? You know, it's funny. Like in hindsight, everything feels so fluid and and loving. Yeah. I. I <laughs> I've blocked out any memory of them not being okay with it. I like that. Yeah. We try to remember it that way, don't we? Sure. Um, and so so now what happens? Now you found your religion. I found my religion, um, and I found myself accepted into NYU and Fordham University. And ironically, the Jesuit University offered me an incredible package to go to their school. And NYU uh, rejected Alana Levine's quest for for financial assistance. How dare they? How dare they? Um, So that's what I ended up doing. I ended up getting into a theater program there. And as luck would have it, and this is how so many of these stories go, at the time, and, and this is, you know, this is me outing myself chronologically, um, there was a theater company in New York City called Circle Repertory Company. Yes. Um, And Lanford Wilson and all sorts of incredible playwrights were born out of that company. And our generation of playwrights that began to work there were John Robin Bates and Peter Hedges and Joe Mantello at the time was an actor in that company and then started directing there because Erin Cressida Wilson, this wonderful playwright, had written a play. She's now a fancy, fancy screenwriter. Warren Light, all of these people um, were working there. I had a professor at Fordham University. He was a member of Circle Rep. Um, They had started a lab company, which was sort of a, a junior company of young actors. He invited me to audition and I got into that um, lab, Circle Rep Lab company. And so it wasn't so much now I'm starting, I'm out of school, I'm starting a professional career. It was like I'm out of school and I've been invited into this artistic haven. And that would have been enough just yeah. like doing one act there for free yeah. <laughs> like and waitressing for the rest of my life bill hurt would come by and 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 all of these incredible you know uh, people were there and at the same time steppenwolf started bringing productions to new york city so you were seeing bomb and gilead and the and the likes of lori metcalf oh. and terry kinney and glenn headley and john malkovich i mean all gary sinise like these mind blowing performers who were who were older than me um and still doing theater. Yeah. That's all they were doing, right? This was before NCIS or CSI and all these oh, things yeah? uh, uh, took them away. So I started just meeting and growing a community. And then I met some 
people and they were like, do you know about backstage? You know, like <laughs> yeah. I started going backstage and I got a job in a summer stock company called the Berkshire Theater Festival. And there was another guy there who was beginning his career named Michael Greif. And Michael cast me in a play that summer called Cloud Nine. And then he got his kind of first New York City directing job doing a play called Machinal at a theater company called Naked Angels. He invited me to do that play with him. And they became truly my first artistic family, that theater company. And then I was in. What do you look for in an artistic home? Wallpaper. I love (laughs) wallpaper. I'm a big fan of wallpaper. The good, the good toilet paper. Oh, absolutely. Um, people who are willing to work hard and and make mistakes in front of each other, right? Like in an environment yeah. where you can fail just as much as you can thrive and continue to be welcome. Um, that was a place where you were building the sets, cleaning up afterwards, directing, producing bringing ideas. You know, we were yeah. doing everything together. So this was a real community of storytellers. Yeah. Most of them had gone to NYU together. Yeah. Um, the Atlantic Theater Company and Naked Angels sort of came up at the same time. A bunch of them had gone to school together. Mm-hmm. And then others who were friends of theirs came in. Um, but really, I mean, rent was cheap. You could have your own theater in New York City. And the the you know Kenny Lonergan was a writer in our company, and um, it was insane. John Kennedy Jr. was on our board, so we got a lot of heat at the time. Oh my gosh! Um, yeah, so so there were all these kind of serendipitous things that happened that got us a lot of attention very quickly. When you were performing, what do you th- and in the beginning stages of your career, mm-hmm. what do you think was the most transformative theatrical experience that you ever had? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. Um, I think it was seeing Angels in America mm. more than more than yes. you know, what oh, yeah. I was doing on stage. But just the idea of it was like seeing an epic opera on stage and and the themes of that, that the content and the themes of, of what Tony Kushner brought to that and how huge it was. Um, and I knew people in it. I knew David Marshall Grant, and I knew I knew Joe Mantello, and then Cynthia Nixon came into the, the show. I knew all these people doing it. And I remember it was one of my first experiences going, I, you are my friend, and you are a truly brilliant artist. How am I in the company mm-hmm. of these people? Like, it was so confusing to me. How do I know you? Yeah. Like, how are we having dinner, and then you're going and doing that? <laughs> I don't even understand what's happening right now. Um, <laughs> So yeah, that was, I would say, when I think back to, wow, look what you can do. Yeah. Can we talk a little about Jake's Women? Sure. So Jake's Women was your Broadway debut. Yes. Um, tell me about who this cast was. This is incredible. The cast was incredible. And and by the way, I started in that show as an understudy, which was the happiest thing for me and remains. I realize I love rehearsing. Mm. And that as soon as an audience comes in and the press comes in, all of it changes yep. in some way. Um so the idea of just working and working on material is was kind of my dream. So I I was cast in that play um, by Jay Binder, and I was doing an off-Broadway play at the time that was being produced by Daryl Roth called Schmolnick's Waltz, just okay. as an aside, which is why I know Jordan Roth, because yes. he okay. was, you know, 15 and coming backstage <laughs> and hanging out. Um, and a remarkable thing happened. I auditioned, I got the understudy part, 
And I was like, you know what? Thank you so much. I can't leave this play I'm doing. I love it so much. And Manny Eisenberg, who was this incredible producer who did all of Neil Simon's plays at the time, and Daryl Roth worked it out that I could do both. That it was unheard of at the time for me to have an understudy in an off-Broadway show. They kind of just counted on you not getting sick. Yeah. Um, but they hired an understudy for me on the off chance I'd have to go do my part on Broadway, which ended up happening a lot. Um, so that was a kind of amazing, beautiful gift that Daryl Roth and Manny Eisenberg gave me, and now I get to say thank you out loud. That cast of Jake's Women was Alan Alda and Kate Burton and Talia Balsam and Tracy Pollan and Brenda Vaccaro and Joyce Van Patten and Helen Shaver. And Gene Sachs was the director. What a group. Yeah. What were some of the lessons you took away watching these pros at work? Well, I, I've had Alan Alda on my show, yes. and, I, and I said this to him then. You know, you learn in, in movies and television, they call it number one on the call sheet. I don't know. It's, I guess, the above the title person yeah. on Broadway. When you have an Alan Alda at the center of something, he was, I mean, Alan Alda was as famous as he could be at the time we did this play, like at the height yeah. of Alan Alda's, you know, MASH had finished and he had done the, you know, Four Seasons and oh, all of yeah. it and, and Woody Allen films. And he was like, uh, you know, couldn't walk down the street. Iconic. He was the warmest, funniest, kindest dad yeah. to mm -hmm. everybody. Um, and so from, and Neil Simon, by the way, what was remarkable about watching Neil is whenever something didn't work during rehearsal, Neil Simon, the comedy doctor, would be like, cut it, it's terrible. Like, like immediately just assumed it was him. Like, it's bad, it's me. Instead of like, give us one second, like, I think we messed up yeah, your yeah. words, actually, and we'll figure it out. But like, just being around these people who could not be more... Um, uh, successful in their chosen careers, their generosity and their humility was was mind blowing. And that's something that's stuck with you ever since. It seems be nice, always be, be nice. nice, be kind. I mean, it it it's we are we are so lucky to call this work. Yeah. I mean, think of what work is. And I'm not saying it's not hard and it's not vulnerable and it's not scary, but it's a privilege. And, um, yeah, I learned that really quickly. And then is there a difference between um, the generosity you find in a rehearsal hall and the generosity that you would find on a studio set? Do you find that it's it's comparable or, or not so much? Um, you know, I think it really has been my experience for the most part. I mean, the the kind of fanciest TV star I've worked with that's sort of comparable to Alan Alda, let's say, is Jerry Seinfeld, mm -hmm. right? I was on Seinfeld at the height of Seinfeld mania, and I would say it was kind of the same thing. I mean, maybe maybe there were more assistants around or sure. more people to kind of buffer that person from the rest of the world, but that was not how Jerry led. He led, he was a true ensemble member, even though it was called Seinfeld. Yes. And, and to, just for our listeners to be aware of, you weren't just on any episode of Seinfeld. I you was were, on the episode of Seinfeld. The contest. Yeah. The most iconic episode yeah. in all of the show's history. Yeah. It was so lucky. If <laughs> you're going to do one episode of Seinfeld, <laughs> do the contest. So did you enjoy doing film and television as well as theater? Or did you, did you prefer being on stage as opposed to being in front of a camera? I've done much more stage, uh -huh. so it, I guess it's more what I knew. 
Um, my first job in television was this incredible experience. I did a series that the film director Robert Altman created for HBO. Yes. It was called Tanner 88. One of my favorites. It it was a remarkable experience. It was sort of right out of school. I I couldn't believe I was there. It's where I met Cynthia Nixon because she was the star of mm-hmm. that series. Um Pamela Reed, a wonderful theater actress. It was filled with theater actors, along with uh, all Danny Jenkins, who oh who god, does, yes, yeah. Every time you open, you know, the theater <laughs> listings, Danny Jenkins is still in some remarkable play. Um, so that cast was a, a truly extraordinary cast, and it felt like a theater troupe. I mean, there was something about my first series that kind of had that feeling to it. Um, And so, again, Robert Altman would do this thing where right away, before you even did a table read of whatever that week's episode was, he'd take us all out to dinner. Like, immediately, he was like, we're a family. We're a family, right? And they were amazing dinners. This is like (laughs) Robert Altman when he, you know, really loved to go out and eat. (laughs) And, uh, And that was my introduction also to, like, fine dining. I mean, there was so much I learned along the way about like, yeah. what's a good wine? And what, I mean, it was kind of amazing. Ron Rifkin, who played my dad um, in a play called Wrong Mountain that David Herson wrote, uh, he taught me everything I know about wine. You know, along the way, people just share these things that have nothing to do with yeah. the theater, like a tuna niçoise is actually canned tuna. That's oh. the real way to do it. Like we'd go to a restaurant and they'd be like, and the tuna is seared. And he'd be like, no, if it's not like a can of bumblebee, that's actually not a real niçoise. <laughs> Just a little known fact. Ooh, I was going to say, there you go. <laughs> like, okay. It seemed to me you, like the fresh salmon would be great, but no. You learn something new yeah. every day. Yeah. And uh, this, I mean, getting to work with Robert Altman, oh my God, that's so incredible. Uh, the series is called Tanner 88, mm-hmm. and it's available on Hulu, and it's available on, no, it's actually available on Filmstruck. It's part of Criterion now. Yes, So yes. if you have not seen it, because it's way ahead of its time. Yeah. I mean, it really is. It's a political satire where this wonderful actor, Michael Murphy of Woody Allen film fame, among other things, played a fictional candidate. And we would go around during the primaries where all the actual candidates were running uh, and pretend that we had a real candidate and we were all part of his world. And Gary Trudeau, the guy who wrote Doonesbury, was the the um, screenwriter for this series. This is incredible. It was incredible. Did you do the second installment mm-hmm. when they did the reunion as I did. well? We did another like six of them in 2004. And what's it like coming back to a character after being away from it for so long? It's the craziest thing. (laughs) It's the craziest thing. I I, I mean, of of course, just the reunion of all the people that you love. And now at this point, I had my brand new baby with me um, when we got to shot that. And so to bring my baby to the set with these people who were with me at the very beginning of it all was incredible. Um, it was a dream, and you feel like they're real people. Yeah. You know, like I thought Andrea Spinelli, this crazy <laughs> character, uh, had grown up a bit, and um, it was the best. It was the best. He died, you know, shortly thereafter, yeah. but I feel like to have that one more moment with Bob Altman was pretty special. You've had some amazing teachers in your time. Um, do you enjoy the process of teaching yourself? I do. I love it. I love it. What to you is the ideal student? I feel like being able to ask questions and to be okay. This is, I'm going to try to think for a minute because this is a really interesting question. 
I'm not sure what the best student is, so I'm not even going to pretend to answer. I just know people who come to play just make it really fun for all of us. This is not math. There is no right answer. That's, that's the joy and the hardship of acting. You just never know. Yeah. Is it landing? Is it not landing? Why did it land last night? Why isn't it landing tonight? Like You're like, what is going on? There's no science. Um, but if you're just willing to play, and everyone talks about it's all about listening. I don't really know how to explain what that means. Yeah. Like, of course it is. I'm listening. Yeah. Um, what kind of listening is not the, like, is this not the right <laughs> listening? But it really is like, you know, listening. Someone who's willing to listen, willing to be open Within like the that. Scene, Within yeah, the scene, yeah. Um, you know, you seem like such a positive energy, and you, you're so celebratory of the fact that we're, we are storytellers. How do you handle conflict? How do you handle disagreement? In my life? We'll say in your life or in the <laughs> rehearsal hall. In the rehearsal you know, I've never, I've never really experienced a tremendous myself disagreement or pushback. Um, I'm there to serve the writer and the director. Uh, I have not written a one-woman show. I don't know what it's like when you are all of those things yes. yourself. Mm -hmm. I don't know how Sherry, Renee Scott, and all these brilliant people do it. Um, I am there. I've been hired to serve their vision. And so if my idea doesn't feel like that's what they want, then that's fine. I, I mean, they've been working on this thing so much longer. Almost every job you get, there have been years and years yeah. of behind-the-scenes stuff and you know, before you show up at that rehearsal. So I kind of trust that they have a vision and an idea that, that is based on a lot of time spent. I have been in a rehearsal room uh, when there is great conflict mm -hmm. between another actor and a director, and I find it incredibly painful. I am the youngest child. <laughs> I often feel like I was born in order to be the peacemaker yes. in my family, yes. um, and it it makes me so anxious inside uh, when people are fighting. Yeah. It's the worst, and I just feel like, are mommy and daddy going to get divorced? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's horrible. Um, and I've seen the most brutal sort of things go down. And then both those people showed up the next day at rehearsal and they were actually fine. And I was still like shaking. Yeah. So I think people communicate in <laughs> all different ways and hats off. Hats off. <laughs> hats off. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your good man, Charlie Brown. Let's do that. Okay. So now how does this come into your orbit? I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. Uh, I mean... I know some practical things that happened, which were Jay Binder, the casting director I mentioned earlier. I've done four Broadway shows. He cast all of them. So I have a fan you have in a that fan, office. Jay, right? I'm going to put a pin on that. Do you enjoy auditioning? Oh, I love it. Do you love it? <laughs> no. <laughs> She's... <laughs> that was such a great convincing read. I was going to cast you on the spot. Um, I... I, I have a lot of different feelings about auditions. Uh -huh. um, I always walk out so happy I went. Yeah. And I always walk in where my body is collapsing underneath <laughs> me, like I'm a stroke victim. Yes, like yes. it doesn't understand, why, why are we going in there? <laughs> What's that? Why are you making why us go there? There was a Chipotle right next door. <laughs> um, so I have so many feelings about it. That whole thing when you start out where they're like, just think of it as a chance to act on a Tuesday. I'm yeah. like, I'm telling myself that, <laughs> and still I don't want to go in. So... <laughs> 
So that's another conversation that we can have in a moment. But I will say that Michael Mayer had seen me that play Mock and All. I mentioned yeah. to you early on that yep. Michael Greif cast me in at Naked Angels. He had seen me in that play, which had been 10 years prior. to. I mean, that was my first play in New York, practically. And um, he remembered that. It was a very comedic performance of a kind of Billie Holiday sort of character. Great. She was a she was like an old school telephone operator with yes. like the headphones and like Murray Hill 7 922 <laughs> like all of that hilarious and it was a really great fit for me and a great time. So that was in his head. Jay Binder called my agent. I don't know, there's this part it's comedic. They want an actress who sings. My agent calls me. I'm like I'm an actress. I don't sing. I I fit half of that. And <sighs> Michael Mastro, do you know the actor yeah. Michael Mastro who yeah. just did The Honeymooners? Yes. He had auditioned for it and we were, ha- he was part of Naked Angels and we were having coffee and I, he was around, he was there. He must have been with me when I got the call and I said no like four times. Like, it's just, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, I wouldn't even begin yeah. to know what to sing. And he was like, you got to do this. I'm telling you, you're perfect for this. So I met. I had never done anything like this before. I was introduced to Stephen Lutvak, who went on to write oh, yeah. A Gentleman's Guide. Um, we came up with um, I Want It All, Veruca's song from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Great fit. Yeah. He came and played with me at the audition. Um, and when I was in that room with Michael, who was so warm and sweet, and Jerry Mitchell and Andrew Lippa, and a million producers, I'm sure. Um, I remember saying, like, I don't even care what happens. I'm singing on Broadway right yeah. now, because it was at 890 Broadway, the <sighs> famous so place cool. where, like, you rehearse and do stuff for Broadway shows. And I remember being in the waiting room, and every musical theater woman that I admired uh, was sitting in that waiting room, and I was like, okay, I'm <laughs> sitting, I'm just getting sit, I get to sit next to her? Yes. Like, I don't yeah. even care. <laughs> Um, and then I got a call back and I was like, this is, come on, am I being punked? Like what's <laughs> happening? And at that callback, Andrew Lip, I remember sat at the piano with me and he was playing all these notes and asking me to repeat them. And I was like, it's over people. And then I got the job and, um, I, you know, and then I was raised by a pack of acting angels, Roger Bart. B.D. Wong, Stanley Wayne Mathis, Kristen Chenoweth, and Anthony Rapp, um, for some reason decided to wrap their magical talent capes around me, and they brought me with them. That's beautiful. That's really what happened. They brought me with them. They were my biggest fans and cheerleaders. I didn't read music. So I had to like yeah. just learn it by listening and listening and listening, which was really hard. Kim Grigsby, all of these people. Jerry Mitchell was like, don't worry, you're going to look like you can dance by the time we... Like, it was just crazy. It was great. But what a com- supportive community that you had enveloping you. And Michael Mayer, he, you know, directors go away and then yeah. they come back. You, you would never need the stage manager to tell you that Michael was seeing the show. He would laugh the hardest. Like six <laughs> months in, you'd be like, Michael's here. Like it was like, you know, he was just so supportive. He loved us and he really let us know that. You know, this is a really tough career. How do you keep yourself so positive? How do you keep yourself so motivated to keep getting out of bed every morning and doing it? You know, I grew up 
with a family. My parents were like major volunteers. There was always something they were volunteering for. There was always an organization, a cause, an event that they were either like telethon style raising yeah. money for or like, we need coats. There are people in need of coats. We're going through our house. We're going to get our coats. And then we're going to knock on every neighbor's door. When I went trick-or-treating, they would make me go with like a, a thing to like raise money at the same time for some organ. I was like, can I just get candy? <laughs> They'd be like... No, you also, there's this thing, this thing going on in Russia and we need to make, like, I was like, okay. Like, it was so amazing. So I think I've always had a sense that whatever I'm feeling, there are people with real need out there and I've got a warm coat and a home and food. I'm good. Right. And also... I loved waitressing. I'm not kidding. That was never a threat. If you told me, like, you're going to have to go back to waitressing, I'd be like, great. You loved it. <laughs> you just love meeting new people? Was that I it? cash in my pocket yeah. at the end of the night. I mean, maybe I would have loved stripping. T- I mean, there are yeah. lots of careers that, like, uh, but I'm not a great dancer, and Jerry Mitchell wouldn't have been there to, like, make sure the pole and I looked, you know, simpatico. But I... I don't know. You know, Edie Falco came on my episode, and she was talking about how... She loved to act, and she needed to make money. And she never really assumed that either of those things would go hand in hand with each other. She would do whatever she could to act whenever possible, anywhere, and she would do what she had to do to make money. And when she got the pilot of Sopranos, she she was like, what? (laughs) And it went to series, and she was like, I could own my apartment? That's hilarious. Like, there was just so, I think... There were a bunch of us who came up. Independent film was beginning in America yes. to kind of like you could go from student film in college to like some indie film where you were cutting carrots and then doing your part and going back. Like I grew up starting this theater company. The idea of like making a lot of money from it or doing it all the time seemed so impossible that that was never my expectation. Um, I got to be on Broadway for many years. I got to do a lot of things that I never expected to do. I worked with incredible directors very early on, and that made it hard. As soon as I wasn't, I started on Robert Altman, Gene Sachs, Michael Greit. Like, not everyone is like that. So I also saw, like, oh, it's not always this. Yeah. It's not always Alan Alda, right? It's not... Yeah. um, but I do think having this focus on helping others, and not to sound Pollyanna about it, has always been equally important and equally busy making. Yeah. M- more busy. I have to put my volunteer work aside to get to that audition, <laughs> which is hard. That's incredible though, that the, you were raised with that sort of ethic. Yeah. What do you know now that you wished you knew growing up? or starting out in this career? To, to really appreciate the now, to be in the moment. I remember Michael Murphy on Tanner 88, my first job, I'd been out of school two seconds. I'm, you know, I knew who Cynthia Nixon was. She did two plays at the same time on Broadway while in college. It's <laughs> like, okay. So I knew who she was. Um, and I remember him telling, I didn't know who Robert Altman was, and that's why I got that job. I think it was that innocent, like, I don't know who this guy is. And then afterwards I was like, Oh my God, 
those movies are amazing, but I hadn't seen McCabe and Mrs. Miller oh, yeah. or Nashville. That wasn't my yeah. oeuvre of yep. film. Um, Michael Murphy just looked at me. He's like, you know what, kid? It doesn't get better than this. And I was like, okay. <laughs> but he was kind of right. Like yeah. that, that kind of um, integrity and commitment to work and joy in the process and respect that that was it and getting paid yeah. that was incredible and traveling all over America like it was it was awesome and so and you bring that joy to everything you do it seems mm, I try yes oh yes I, I try mean, I've heard about 70 episodes of you bringing joy in on on a frequent basis so let's talk now about little known facts so where does the title of little known facts come from if you are a musical theater lover you know that Lucy sings a song called little known facts and you're a good man Charlie Brown um so it's a bit inside, although a majority of my listeners are, are lovers of, of Broadway, so it, it wasn't a surprise to them. Um, and it also just made sense in the end. You know, as I was looking for a title for the podcast, someone once said, don't, don't stress it, it'll come. And it just did. It organically came. I don't remember who. I might have even been talking to B.D. Wong about it. Um, but it made sense because what ends up happening in every episode is a reveal of these little known facts, sometimes even forgotten by my guest mm. until we're in conversation. Um, I'm never going to be thrilled with a name. I, I love my children's names, but every time I hear another name, I still think like, should I have named Georgia <laughs> Eloise? That's a great name too. <laughs> you, you know, like, yes. like names are so yes. hard. Yes. Um, every once in a while, even with my dog, I'll try a different <laughs> name and, and I'm like, oh, she answers to that. Like if I say it the same way as Lola, I can just <laughs> say, you know, like, Cashew. <laughs> and she comes. So I have a hard time being sure about the right <laughs> name, but that is the title and it works. And you, and I, and the, the podcast itself works. Now, let me ask you, how do you decide on who you want to interview? How do you decide where, where that process begins? Mm. Cause I mean, the guests have been incredible. Yeah. I mean, just absolutely incredible. I, it's funny. I was worried I'd run out. Right. <laughs> and, and now it's like, how do I handle the, the backlog of, of people the one, you know, I joked earlier about telling my age by admitting I saw the first, yeah. you know, Angels in, in America on, on stage the first time, yes. not the revival. The, the really beautiful thing about, about being a grown-up and having worked for as long, you know, being around this business for almost three decades um, is the incredible people I've met along the way. I'm so proud of my friends and... And now, I mean, obviously, most of the people are people I know or I worked with. Slowly now, people are coming to me. Like, I got a call from Uma Thurman to come be on my podcast. I, I don't know Uma. I've been an admirer of her yeah. work. I had the most extraordinary conversation with her. We know a million people in common, but it turns out she had heard Julianne Moore on the episode oh. and, her, and their friends. And, and in fact, Uma's assistant and Julianne's assistant are great friends. Like, it's just funny the way. And, and um, so they, they are coming from all different sources right now, my guess. And uh, I choose, there's a criteria, it's quite simple, incredibly talented and incredibly kind. That's kind of it. The, those, that's those the, are the criteria. two things yeah. that yeah. you know firsthand. Yeah. Is it hard to separate in the interview your friend from the person you're interviewing? I think I've gotten better at that. I think my early interviews when I just started 
might almost feel too inside, mm. right? Like we're telling an hysterical laughing. Slattery tells this whole story about when I'm like in this, cra- I, I mean, it's funny now, but we thought I was drowning. I yep. didn't, so it's <laughs> funny. But I literally look like I was in the spin cycle of, of the washing machine and we're dying when he's retelling it. And it's something that he and I see so clearly in our yes. mind's eye like it was yesterday. Um, you know, BD and I were just talking about that too. He's going to come on again. And I, and I think I was learning at the time. I was so scared to include any of myself in my early interviews thinking no one wants to hear anything about yeah. Alana. They just want to hear about BD. They just want to hear about Laura Linney. Um, and slowly I'm learning that actually the people are interested in the conversation. Oh, yes. Um, they're listening because Laura Linney is on, but it's become, uh, I'm not anxious about that anymore. Good. So I, I feel like it's, it's going really well. How much prep work do you do before you begin down to an interview? A hundred hours. You do? I so do an thorough incredible researcher. amount of work and, and sometimes even more for the people I do know because I don't want it to just be like, I remember the time I saw you in, you know, yeah. Death of a Salesman, Bill Camp. Like yeah. I, I want, in, and Bill Camp is my neighbor. So it gets confusing. Um, it's like I live in an acting, you know, retirement yeah. home and, and uh, everybody's there. <laughs> I do a crazy amount of research and it serves me well because I may not even talk about three quarters of the things that I've looked at, but, but it's all, it's like doing a tremendous amount of preparation and it either is or is not useful in the end when you act the part, but it's all in there. It's all in there somewhere. Um, do you structure your interviews? Do you come in with a really definitive idea of what you want to ask? There's an arc. There's, There's an, arc. an arc. And then, like all good documentary, yeah. you have your idea, like, we're doing a doc about, you know, behind the curtain yeah. podcast, and then there was a murder next door, yeah. and suddenly we're like, oh, that was lucky. Oh, Our ratings just went up. <laughs> um, so I think it's going to be one thing. I do kind of have a beginning, middle, and end to every story. The audition story is is yeah. kind of a, a, a signature piece yeah. of the podcast. It's one of my favorite moments each time, hearing the most hilarious in retrospect, audition stories by and our stars. I must ask you, what yeah. what is yours? Uh, if you're willing to I, share. I can. I mean, the one, I mean, there's every one of them. Every one of them has <laughs> either something comedic or or humiliating. In early, in early audition, uh, I was auditioning for a play and Jonathan Mark Sherman wrote the play. I think it was called Women in Wallace. And the character shows the the person she's talking to a condom. And I don't know why I thought it would be like amazing, but like I was like, I'm going to bring the condom in. As if like, what, like if we hire her, like, oh, good. (laughs) We've just saved a dollar. Like, (laughs) I don't even know what I'm thinking. But like, I was like, you know, they say do something no one else ever does. And that's how they'll remember you. And this is like so the beginning of my thing. And so I put it in my pocket and I've, you know, I was, I was still, and, and, and I'm a firm believer that if you can learn the whole thing by heart, I know they say, you know, you don't want it to seem like a finished yeah. product. So finding that like s- sweet center of, of, of how to do this, but I, I knew it so well that I could work with props in my audition. And I got to the moment where I was like, it's okay, Wallace, I have a, it got stuck in my pocket. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's stuck. Okay, I'm going to keep going, but like I'm really bummed out because yeah. I had this great bit that I was going to do. 
and the audition ends, and I basically tank it myself because I'm so like, like who cares? Who cares about this idea I have? But I did, and talk about like not just staying in the moment. I leave the room, <laughs> like, you know, wah, wah, here I go, up the long, long stairway out of the theater at Lincoln Center. I'm in the outside waiting area, and I'm like, I'm going back in. I'm going to go back in. I'm going to go back in. So uninvited, I go back in. <laughs> They're having their little, you know, powwow. And I, and I hand Daniel Swede, the casting director, the condom. And I'm like, look. <laughs> He's like, what? I'm like, the condom. <laughs> and I left. <laughs> So and I won the Tony for that play, and I held that condom up. Like, it was so stupid, the whole thing. Oh, my God. And I imagine if Daniel Sui is listening to this, and he may, he's no recollection of what I'm talking about. He doesn't dine out on this story. If he were asked, like, what's the stupidest thing someone did, he'd be like, well, there was this girl back in the 90s. But I was like, yeah. I'm still like I can feel it. I'm oh, hot inside. Yes, yes. I'm embarrassed like it happened yesterday. Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's yours. Yeah. That's mine. <laughs> I love that it unites all the episodes though. I think that's a great unifier. Um when you when you mentioned before earlier that each episode has an arc, do you know that arc going into it? Do you think okay, I know I'm going to start with this and I'm going to find a way of going into it or does it just, just happen randomly? Well, it doesn't happen randomly. I mean, there is a very clear um you know, if you look at like the screenwriting structure of the different acts yes. that you you know exist, and then you go off script. So I want to have a very clear idea of what I want to do, um, in case that needs to stay kind of set up for the whole time. The difference is, I tell everyone we're going to talk about forty five minutes, yeah. and a lot of my um, guests have a heart out, and I'm like. Or do you need it to be less? So some of the, the thing that I don't know is how long they're going to stay. I tell everyone 45 minutes. Donna Murphy and I ended up chatting for over two hours, oh, which is yeah. why hers became a, a two-parter. Yeah. So there's my idea of what's going to happen, and then there's like whatever organically happens that day. And I'm completely open to that. If someone wants to stay for hours and my booth is open... That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. But that also changes how we structure our conversation. Absolutely. Um, who do you think is the greatest interviewer? Uh, no, I don't want to say greatest. I don't like that. Who inspires you as an interviewer? Um, Terry Gross. Mm. Mark Marin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so kind of very different personalities. Yeah. But um, Terry, I mean, I love... I love that Terry interviews people from every walk of life. It's not obviously just artists. It's people doing interesting things. And she manages to get a story out of everyone, even people who aren't used to being interviewed yes. and talking about themselves. Um, and Mark, you know, I've been a fan of his podcast and, and his <clears throat> relationship to his guests for a long time. So they're great inspirations the to me. The two of them. Um, who... If you if you had a time machine and you could go back and interview any artist you wanted and you had half an hour with them, who would it be? Do you edit your oh, episodes? Yeah. Okay, oh, yeah. so I'm gonna pause for a pause. minute. 
Um, I gosh, take your time. That's really hard. Can I? Can I think about that? Absolutely. Can I call you back? Yes, and of t- course you can. <laughs> You tell us, and we'll tweet it out we'll to everybody. We'll just yes, or let them guess. Lo- we can create. Oh yeah. Some sort of, oh, I love know, that a guessing guess game. It is. We'll, we'll play a game. Yeah. What do you want your listeners to take away from little known facts? Well, I'm going to give you a, a, something that happened right before I walked in here today. Love it. There's um, there's someone that a lot of your listeners may know who she is because she's very active on social media, and her handle is Broadway Girl NYC. Oh, yes. Her real name is Laura Haywood. And Laura is someone who is really involved in promoting the world of theater in all sorts of ways. And Laura has um, unplugged and has gone to write a memoir. And I don't know where she's... Well, I do know where she's writing, but it's a secret. Okay. And she emailed me and tweeted out this morning that she was in the most beautiful place in the world suffering from intense writer's block. So she took a moment to listen to my episode with Nia Vardalos. And much of what Nia and I ended up talking about is what inspired her to go ahead and write my big fat Greek wedding for herself, which turned into my big fat Greek movie that we all know of, and has gone on to do amazing things since then. And Laura wrote to me and said, I'm writing again. I was really stuck. I listened to that episode, and I have this renewed energy and faith in my ability to create something. Mm. Now, for me, if you ask me what my dream was, there you have it, that a conversation that I helped to curate and inspire is inspiring artists or humans, regardless of what they're pursuing, to go back to what they want to do with a renewed faith and passion in themselves. That's the dream. Mm. So sometimes people have told me what the dream was in in a way that I could never have been as articulate about it. But that's it. That's it. And I will say that you make those dreams come true every day for so many people. I mean, there are so many people who love this podcast, myself included. It is such a valuable service that you are doing. It's not just entertainment. I mean, you are changing people's lives on a daily basis. And long after you are gone, these stories will still be around, still inspiring people. You've created something quite beautiful. Thank you. And uh, to all of our listeners, I'm sure you do subscribe, but if you do not subscribe, once again, it's the Little Known Facts podcast with Ilana Levine, and it really is incredible. It really is. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for all the great work that you do. And uh, I cannot wait to see what comes next. You are so kind. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. I'm honored. Till next time. Bye-bye. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.